0: Will the Lord be with you today? Let's pray together. O Lord, heal and open our eyes that we may recognize you. Show us the road that we must travel that we may see you Through the lessons today of the scriptures and through the breaking of the bread. Reveal yourself to us. Heal us. Heal our minds, our bodies, our emotions, and our wills. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. The title of the message this morning is Being Known by the Father's Bottomless, Compassionate Affection for Us. That's a mouthful. But God's affection is deep. It's never-ending. It's source the source never runs out. We don't have words really to describe God's love for us. Our baptism is intended to lead us to a converted state. J.I. J. Packer said that we spend a lot of time thinking about our conversion and not enough processing our conversionism, our converted state. Now in Wesleyan theology, we talk a lot about it. (laughs) John Wesley, Charles Wesley, those who have followed in those footsteps of the Wesleyan-Arminian theology, which we adhere to and we love here at Asbury, we talk a lot about it. We have a good theology. Our challenge is to live out our theology our challenge is to not let baptism become the end of our experience. The truth of the gospel is heard in our gospel lesson from John the Baptist that Jesus will baptize us with the Holy Spirit. That's why a dove rested on Jesus in his baptism. It needed to be seen that what was happening in Jesus' baptism was. An enactment of the Holy Spirit's work in Jesus' baptism. The Holy Spirit's work, as we read further in the Gospel of John, is to be our paraclete, our helper, our advocate. In all those times of comfort and, and times when we need guidance, times when we need conviction, times when we need to be led into all truth and righteousness, The Holy Spirit is to teach us all things and bring us to our remembrance all that Jesus taught his disciples, John 14 and 16. You see, the Holy Spirit can and will provide the power that is needed to be like our Lord and Savior if we will create the space, the space for discipleship and healing. You see, one of the ways we do that is regularly receiving Holy Communion. And when we come to the table today, it's always a lovely, lovely invitation to receive Christ's spiritual presence and his healing ministry deeper into our lives. Because if you're like me, you come to the table oftentimes ruptured, disintegrated, and in need of more grace and shalom in my life. That's that's my experience. So as we come to the table, I know that this invitation will be given to you by our dean in a minute, but I invite you to to ready yourselves to receive that nourishment and that healing wherever it's needed today at the table. That uh, theologian and writer G.K. Chesterton said that the Christian life is like a breathtaking journey toward the stars. A breathtaking journey toward the stars. Like any grand adventure, you will not, I will not be the same when we end this adventure as when we started it. We're going to be different. Every step with Jesus changes us along the way. It's a transformative journey that we're on. So I invite you to answer these questions through the message today. Where are you going today in your Christian life? How are you going to get there? And where is it that we have been inhibited by receiving and sharing the transformative love of Jesus Christ? Where is it? And how can we become the change? How can we be the change in us? How can we receive the change in us? How can we be the change in our Christian communities? How can we be the change in the world that we live in? The Old Testament doesn't you may be surprised but i'm sure most of you already know this that the old testament does not have an idea of final judgment and of people being under god's wrath and going to hell that my friends comes out of the new testament and it comes out of other early jewish texts. plug for early early judaism plug for early judaism where the objects of God's wrath are not only one nation, but the whole world. It's a reminder that God's revelation is progressive, right? That God doesn't reveal himself all at once and his, his salvation, it's been, being revealed to us. But friends, our Old Testament and gospel lessons invite us to consider today the function of God's lamb for God's people. Both of these texts today invite us to do that. Christ's death functions like a Passover, Lamb's death. Passover in the Old Testament, though, is not a sacrifice. Not in the strict sense of the word. And you won't find it in Leviticus 1-7. through 7. <laughs> It's not like that. The Passover lamb is not a sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament. What happens to its blood is different from what happens to the blood of a, of a regular sacrifice. Right? I don't see any of the priests putting blood over the doorpost, you know, in the temple. That's not what they do. This is a different thing. The New Testament came to understand that the Passover lamb is a different type of sacrifice. And it applied it to Jesus. And this involved seeing the meaning of the Passover in a new way. In a new way. John's Gospel may even allude to Jesus' death happening near or around the time that the Passover lambs are sacrificed. And friends, if you and I are marked by Christ's blood, as the door of an Israelite's house was marked by this lamb's blood that we read about in Exodus this morning, then that protects you from the destroyer. That protects you from the destroyer when God implements His sovereignty over the world that resists His authority. And there are many things that are resisting His authority. Many, many things. Christ's blood marks you and us, I, as someone who, what? Belongs to the people whom God has already claimed as His own. And who have recognized that claim in their lives. It marks us that way. You see, Pharaoh and his Egyptian people were opposed to God. They were opposed to God fulfilling His purposes of bringing a new creation. They were were opposed to God bringing hope to a world that needed hope. They resisted that new creation. They resisted that future that God has that's hopeful in the midst of a toxic rupture, that's overwhelming God's people To overwhelming painful mental states and spiritual states. Therefore, the plagues come upon Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. The blood of God's Lamb does not cover Pharaoh and his people. That's a hard text, that's a hard thing to consider. Look at how Pharaoh deals with God's people. If you go back to chapter 1, he says in verse 10, Come, let us deal shrewdly with God's people. They, or they will in, increase in the event of war. They'll join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Pharaoh knew that God's people, if they were fruitful, which was part of the new creation, by the way, they would oppose him even in greater numbers. Verse 22 of that same chapter, Pharaoh says in summary, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. He's doing everything he can to oppose God's new creation and God's hope for the future. You see, Pharaoh wants to erase the fruitfulness of God's people. That's what he wants to do, the fruitfulness of God's people. He is opposing and working actively against The new creation that God wants to bring into the world, and the hope of the future that God is bringing into the world. What's wrong with this man? Why would he oppose God? Well, look at chapter five, verse two. We're told by the writer, but Pharaoh said, "Who is the Lord?" You can just imagine him saying this very arrogantly. "Who is the Lord that I should heed him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord." And I will not let Israel go. Friends, that's the resistance par excellence of God's new creation, of God's hope for the future. Pharaoh is not intimate. That word no, Yada in Hebrew, of course you you know this or you, you want to know this, that God wants to be intimate with his people. That's the way love ha- can only, only way love can thrive is through intimacy. It's the only way. Now that's going to take work on our part to learn how to be more intimate with God. It's going to take work on our part to be be more intimate with our spouses. It's going to take work on our part to be more intimate with our friends. It's going to take work on our part to be more intimate with our enemies. It's going to take work to become intimate. Now we don't like that word, work, because it seems to oppose grace. But friends, it doesn't oppose grace. It doesn't. In fact, it's cooperative with grace because grace that is saving and is sanctifying leads, as Paul says, to work out our salvation. Friends, God's not asking us anything that we need to do that He's not going to help us to do it. He wants an intimate people. He wants us. Pharaoh is like that serpent in the garden. He's an agent of chaos in Old Testament terms. God doesn't like chaos, friends. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. Paul says, if you're in a church that's chaotic, you better get order in that church. Right? You remember that in Corinthians? God doesn't like chaos. Because that's an agent of the enemy. Chaos creates confusion. Chaos hurts people. Chaos disorients people. Chaos is not usually what we associate with God. The Bible doesn't. It's usually working against redemption. God wants to secure a path that will secure the future of the world and his people. Pharaoh wants to secure his own people and his own selfish aims. You see, the Passover judgment is an act of hope and it establishes a way into the future for God's people. It's not a judgment for judgment's sake, friends. It's an act of restorative judgment. It's an act of hope friends if we're going to increase hope in our lives we're going to have to actively change our deforming memories and rewire our futures which is part of god's directive in romans, uh, Paul, Paul, part of paul's directive in romans 12 which is what be transformed by the renewing of our minds right Moses told the Israelites to remember or recount the story of the Exodus again and again. He says it in this text. When you get to the land, recount this story. When he gets into Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, Recount this story. Remember the story. Their collective memories about this story how God, a real person, appeared to them and delivered and guided them out of slavery might evoke these kinds of things. I want you to think with me for a minute. It might evoke things like the agony of grieving mothers at the hand of a frightened despot. It might evoke the humiliation of slavery and powerlessness. It might evoke the mixture of hope with worry (laughs) in the face of strange and sometimes devastating forces of nature. It might evoke the odor of a lamb's blood everywhere. It might evoke the screams following the sudden death of the Egyptians' firstborn sons and daughters. It might evoke the chaos of a million or more refugees suddenly on the move to literally God knows where they're going, right? It might evoke the surreal drainage of a sea that a moment before had appeared like a death sentence to them. Imagine seeing that. Water is going to be the death of us. No, water is not going to be the death of us. Imagine the foaming, flaming-eyed horses drowning under the weight of the greed of the pharaohs. Of the Pharaoh. Imagine the unfathomable exhaustion and relief in that Passover. That's a lot like our lives. If we'll think about it, if we'll reflect on our own stories. Because all of us have some trauma in some way, shape, or form. All of us have negative impacts in our life. And when we come to remember the Passover, we're invited to renew our memories. We're invited to reshape our memories in light of God's story, as was said several times this morning. Now imagine with me decades later, a Hebrew family gathered comfortably around a table, eating good food and listening to an elderly family member recounting the story of God's people's deliverance. It's a different picture. The entire drama of the Exodus shared over bread and boiled lamb shank will be smelled and seen and felt by these listeners now. The speaker and the mealtime will become part of this larger landscape of the people's story. The family's present and future will be shaped by the telling of the story. Listen to me, not just the facts of the story. Not just the facts of the story. Because, see, to love God with all of our minds is to engage our entire memory, not just limited parts of it. It's not just a logical sequence of systematic theology. I know you didn't see, me, see that one coming from me. It's not just a series of systematic theology, although that's extremely important, but it's not enough. It's not enough. Loving God is autobiographical. Listen, loving God is autobiographical. God uses our stories to confront, to comfort, to convict, to woo, and He does them to heal us. Friends, trying to make sense of Jesus will be filtered through your memory and your story. God created the mind, the brain matrix, and called it good. Everything He created, He called it good. Remember that? Everything that God created, He created it good. Our implicit and explicit memory functions are meant to bring us closer to God and function to produce healing, renewal, revitalization. Now, some of us may have trouble trusting Jesus, if we're honest. Now, where does that come from? Where does that come from? Well, I would suggest to you that many times... What's happening is that Jesus is contending with areas of us that are deeply wounded. Jesus is contending with us in places that are too dormant to trust him. Perhaps you've been taught to keep your emotional distance from others. I know many of us come from families like that. I did. Perhaps... You become too absorbed in relationships, losing your own self, losing your own identity. So when someone comes to you and says, Jesus is compassionate and forgiving, oh, your left brain, it makes all kinds of logical sense to you. Oh, sure, Jesus loves me. But it has very little impact on your felt and embodied sense and your memory and emotions. Now, why is that, friends? You might have a razor-sharp theology and a dry-as-dust life. Academia breeds that. (laughs) It doesn't need to, but academics, I'm not just talking about Christian academics, I'm talking about academics in general can breed that. Razor-sharp thinking, dry-as-dust life. Somehow we got to put these together, okay? As Christ followers, we're in need of greater integration. We're in greater need of wholeness. We're in greater need of shalom in our lives. So we've got to, and I know this to be a fact, we've got to attend to our own feelings, our own memories, our own emotions. Christ has marked you with his blood. Christ has marked me with his blood so that we might experience more of him in deeper areas of our lives. When you came to Christ, you didn't know what all you were signing up for, did you? That's why baptism in the early church was three years long. There's a reason for that. We must know what we've signed up for. We've signed up for nothing else than to become like Jesus. I've struggled in this area. And I imagine everybody in this chapel today and people who are watching have struggled in this area. I don't have any problem telling you that. I don't have any trouble telling you that. Because I'm on a healing journey. I'm on a grace-filled journey of wholeness in my life. Many of us are guided by stories that are us, Stories of self-authorship stories of narcissism, stories of performance-based lives, stories of perfectionism, stories of contamination, stories of self-loathing. They are damning who we are. You see, these are deforming stories. They produce anxiety. They produce despair. They produce joylessness. They produce negative critical thinking. They produce disaffirmation of who we are in Christ. They produce a lack of self-care. Our community is not immune to these toxic stories. If you go to any Christian community, you're going to find them. Because you know what? We're all in this together. (laughs) And God's greatest work is redeeming our toxic stories and letting us put them in alignment with the gospel story. Amen? That's the good news today. That's the good news today. Many of us have become blinded to the beautiful things that God is seeking to do in us. Sometimes trusted people can draw it out, but in other instances... The misguided story that's robbing you and I of joy and peace in Christ has got to be disentangled through deep spiritual friendship, through spiritual direction, and for many of us, professional counseling. That's just the reality, because these deformative stories are deeply embedded in us. Now, when I hear a sermon, I think, oh gosh, I gotta go do all this today. Listen, friends, This is progressive sanctification. Are you willing today? Are you willing today to receive the healing that you need today? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of changing one little thing in your life that that makes you closer to Christ. That helps you to see the redemptive story in a better way. That frames your life in a way where you can receive more of His transforming love in your life. Where you can share more of His transforming love in your life. It's a journey. It's a journey. I close with this. Hear these words from Jesus. (laughs) Jesus says to all of us, Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll you'll recover your life. I love that. You'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Listen, work with me, Jesus says. (laughs) Watch how I do it. Learn from me. Remember the gospel story? Andrew and this other disciple, what did they do? They said, Teach us, Rabbi, we will come and live with you. That's important in discipleship. Learn from me. Learn the enforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That's our invitation today. And so as we come to the table, remember St. Paul's words. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us.